on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, not a good start to the cherry season for one Hewan Valley grower. 80% of the of those varieties sort of uh, split, so, uh, you know, it's not only little splits, it's, it's big splits where they've they've gone uh, right around the cherry and down as deep as the stone. And getting farmers to meet and relax over a long lunch. They don't realise how many years have disappeared during that time. So a number of them have said, oh, I actually haven't seen Joe Bloggs for eight years because they've retired, they've gone into their own lifestyle and they're, all their old connections have disappeared and they just don't interact anymore. So this is a good opportunity to get them back together. And chewing the fat, as they call it, a group of farmers in the state's northwest getting together over a long lunch to catch up. That story coming up later in the program and how is the cherry season shaping up for a couple of growers in Tasmania. That story in just a moment. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday, last one of 2022. And the ABC Rural Team in Tasmania wishes you and your family all the best for 2023. Also coming up today, the big New Year's camp draft meeting in Gippsland, as well as converting prime movers from diesel to electric. And we take you crocodile egg collecting in the Northern Territory. Very dangerous occupation. Plus a check on the weather, of course, and your thoughts on any issues via the text line. Feel free to say good day. 0438 922 936 is that number. 0438 922 936. We start the day with cherries. And a Huon Valley cherry grower says it's been the worst start to the season he's ever seen in more than two decades of growing cherries. Mike Oakford from Woodstock Cherries between Hewanville and Signet estimates he's lost 80% of the early cherry crop to splitting because of the recent rain. Well, for us, it's not looking very good. We've been badly, badly damaged with, uh, with the rain that happened uh, about a fortnight ago when we had the, the week of overcast weather with the drizzle and showers for almost a week and uh, the trees just stayed too wet. So consequently, we've got... Uh, uh, a badly split uh, crop on the earlier varieties like Van and Stella and and Lap and Simone. How much, How much damage? Yeah. Uh, oh, it's a bit it's a bit hard to say, but I've I've sort of been around the orchard and sort of you know sampled and done things, and I'm sort of thinking I've probably got around eighty percent, eighty percent of the of those varieties sort of uh, split. So. Uh, you know, it's not only little splits; it's, it's big splits where they've they've gone uh, right around the cherry and down as deep as the stone. So, you know, there's nothing we can do with them apart from either just letting them fall on the ground, or uh, at the moment, I've got I've got people just going through trying to pull out the the worst of the rubbish to try and salvage a little bit from it to make the picking a little bit easier when we when when they you know when they ripen up. So. Yeah, so it's been a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, a disaster, I suppose you could say. Yeah, is it one of uh, one of the worst early seasons you've seen for a while? Well, it's the, it's the worst one that we've ever had. You know, uh, we've been here twenty twenty two years, and uh, this is the most damage I've, I've ever copped. I mean, we've we've had a few years when we've you know we've got little bits of damage, and even last year we probably had about forty percent damage, but we've had nothing you know nothing like this. Um, 
So uh, yeah, so it's, it, it hasn't been a good a good start to the season for us, unfortunately. Must be frustrating too, because I'm assuming you're getting plenty of calls asking uh, where are the cherries. Oh yeah, we've had we've had stacks of um, you know stacks of people calling. We've we've been open a couple of times. So I think we opened the first weekend in December for about I don't know three or four hours. We had a little bit of really early stuff, and we we put that in the in the plastic bags. And uh, you know we only had a you know probably 150 kilos or something like that, and you know it sold out in. You know, a couple of hours, and we didn't do anything. We just put a sign on the end of the road saying cherries available. So, um, you know, word soon got around, and then you know we had another bit of a go about a fortnight later, and virtually did the same thing. And then yesterday we had, uh, oh, I don't know, we had you know three or four hundred kilos, five hundred kilos maybe, and uh, you know we we nearly sold out yesterday. We're just doing the last little bit of it now, and. People are all saying that there's, you know, there's no cherries around. There's, you know, no one's picking yet. So, you know, it's 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 later for for whatever reason, and I presume it's the the way the weather's been. Yeah, because it was very wet in the lead up to uh, to the latest harvest, wasn't it? Well, it was. Yes, you know, we had, you know, we had a good pollination period, you know, for the cherries, but compared to the year before when we had a very bad. Um, time trying to get them pollinated but this year was okay but then after that it's sort of we've had these wet periods where uh, you know it's been cool and wet and and uh, you know the fruit sort of didn't grow that it shared a reasonable amount you know we still got a, we still had a decent a decent crop but it did shed a little bit uh, so maybe that was because Perhaps the pollination wasn't quite as good as we were hoping it was going to be, um, but still we had enough there, and we would have had a you know we would have had a very good crop if if we hadn't have been damaged by the rain. So, uh, uh, but it seems a little bit localised, and it, it, I think it depends on when the um, you know the maturity of the fruit. I mean, we are in an early site here, and it's uh, a little bit further advanced than perhaps some of the other areas around. So, consequently, you know, other people are sort of not reporting damage or as much damage. So, you've spoken and, to a few other growers, Mike. Yeah, I've had you know one or two two others around that are sort of saying that you know um, they're reasonably okay. But then I've you know I've spoken to <laughs> two or three others around you know nearby here that are sort of you know really been badly damaged so um, I think it you know it depends and it depends on the crop load I mean if you've got a very heavy crop load on your trees you get less splitting so you know it's a um, just a function of the whole process I suppose that uh, you know if you can if you carry a light crop you've got bigger fruit and it tends to split more so heavy crop at the time when it's sort of starting to ripen it's probably a little bit smaller in size but uh, you have less um, you know, you get less effect on the splitting. So, Mike, yeah. you're sitting on tender hooks, uh, waiting for the late season cherries. What's that looking like? Oh well, I've got uh, I've got Regina sitting down there. That's that's unscathed because it was a, you know it was later, so the fruit was green. You know, still in the green stage, so that it hadn't started to go you know, to straw or, or light pink, and um, but survived okay. I mean, I've got. Um, I don't know, I've probably got 15, 20 tonnes sitting there. That's that's okay at the moment, just minimal damage, probably 5% damage maybe. So I'm hoping it's sort of, you know, that's going to give us a little bit of uh, <laughs> a little bit of return that, that allows us to, you know, 
maybe maybe break even, but I don't think we're going to do the break even bit this year. I don't think somehow. And you're going to pick them early in the new year. When when do you start there? Oh, they'll be ready probably around the middle of January. You know, between then and the twentieth of January, I would think. It'll be too late for the Chinese New Year this year, so um, everybody was trying to get their fruit early because Chinese New Year is, I think, the 22nd of January or something like that, you know, around about that time. So fruit has to be, you know, in the boxes and on the way to market a week before that. So it meant that people were trying to bring stuff forward to, you know, take advantage of the weather, uh, of the Chinese New Year, but the weather just as... You know, it's made the season has made that impossible. Most people are not going to, you know, are not going to get anywhere near it. I yeah. don't think. The joys of being a cherry farmer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, good luck for the new year, Mike. And uh, sorry yeah. to hear about the uh, the sour start no, to right. the oh, well, that's, finish. That's right. Yeah, that's the way it goes. So you know, you, you ride with the punches as best you can and uh, front up for next year, I suppose. Hugh and Valley cherry grower Mike Oakford from Woodstock Cherries on the poor start to the season where he lost an estimated 80% of the early crop due to recent rainfall splitting the fruit. In the Derwent Valley, cherry grower Peter Woodhouse from King Rock Cherry says they're running late this year, but all is looking good for a fine harvest. Our fruit is looking absolutely fantastic. It's probably some of the biggest fruit we've seen in, in quite a while. We've we've dodged most of the uh, bad weather to date, but but you never say never with these sorts of things. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're very eager and we're very excited at the moment and hope, hope it all goes well, as, as we do for everybody else. Very exciting time. And you don't do early cherries? Uh, no, not, not, as a, not as a rule. There are other people in the valley that, that do do earlier varieties of cherries, so they're really good at that. We try to stick with what we know. Where our little orchard is, it's, it's, in a, it's a, an interesting little spot where it's, it is a little bit later than most other orchards in the Derwent Valley. So um, we just go with that and try, you've, got, you've got to be risk averse in this game and, and trying to do earlier ones for us um, brings us into a, a frost window that we don't want to be in. Yeah. And um, when do you start picking uh, the cherries, do you think? We should be starting picking between the 10th and the 15th of January. That'll be about a week uh, later than last year, but we're hoping on a uh, that we receive a lot of sunshine between now and then as well. That would be ideal. How are you going for uh, for workers? You got plenty. We've done two rounds of interviews, which is basically a lot of the local people that that have come. Uh, a lot of them have come back from last year, which is which is even better to hear. It looks like there's a lot more um, backpacker labour around as well, so that'll be really good. We should be pretty good for pickers, although we're, we're still open to people um, contacting us. A position we, we give most people the go so yeah what do you need in the lead up to the start of picking as far as the weather i'd like a bit more sunshine we we don't really need any rain um i don't think anybody does it's mainly sunshine 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 and some of the trees um will you be able to pick them at the one time or what's the situation with with the singular trees themselves some of the trees have um, varied ripening stages on them but they do tend to come in together and consolidate with their colour um, later on in the season, which which will be good. We we, we really want to uh, resist picking over trees more than once, um, so that that probably tends to mean that we can leave them a little bit later. And if the weather suits, that that's fine. But if 
if the weather dictates that we need to start and get in there and get them off, well, that creates its own environment to manage. And where will the cherries go? We should be sending cherries overseas to, to Thailand, uh, possibly even China again this year. We haven't sent to China for a year or two. Vietnam, Southeast Asia, basically. Some of our cherries go domestically. We've got a, a fantastic relationship with a few other orchards and uh, a packing house in Campania that, that does um, does all our packing and some of our marketing and a, a marketing agent that uh, looks after a lot of orchards uh, throughout Australia. Um, so we, we just try to concentrate on what we're good at and leave them to uh, to do that. And you're one of the orchards that uh, has people turn up at the... Uh the front gate and uh, walk in and buy, buy cherries in the in the garage. We we, we do. I leave that to my mum and her sister, <laughs> um, and I, that, that's a real highlight for us. You, you get to see people possibly once in well, they, they tend to come back um, once a year um, and see what they've been up to. You, you can. Um, spruik the local attractions in, in, in and around your Norfolk. That's a fantastic thing to be able to do and, and share that with people. And it's a very, oh, I don't want to say the word unprofessional, um, it's a very... Um, laid back. Laid back atmosphere, yes, yes. Of course it would be with mums. What would we, would we do without mums? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And she and loves still- doing it? She, I, I think she absolutely loves doing it. I, well, I'm, I'm sure she absolutely loves doing it. And we, we, and we much like, I think, Westaway Raspberries, there's a real culture of having the family around, and, and we love that. So um, mum's from a large family. Everybody pitches in too, so that that's a fantastic thing. All right, good luck for the uh, latest season and hope the weather's kind. Thank you very much. It's Peter Woodhouse from King Rock Cherries in the Derwent Valley expecting to start picking the cherries in a couple of weeks' time and keeping fingers crossed for some fine weather with plenty of sunshine. Still to come on the Country Hour, converting prime movers from diesel to electric and the big New Year's camp draft. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Condinen Group and ABC Rural. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Got a really lovely story coming up for you in the second half of the program. Uh, lots of farmers getting together for a long lunch in a shed on a property in northwest Tasmania. Fabulous story. That's coming up a little bit later. Well, a regional New South Wales company is converting diesel prime movers to electric and trialling seven trucks involved in agriculture, mining and food distribution. Janus Electric on the Central Coast has orders for 130 conversions from companies all across Australia and says the economics do stack up. CEO Lex Forsyth told David Clawton they can travel around 500 kilometres, take four minutes to recharge. The running cost is less than a quarter of a conventional diesel truck. We're taking up to 10-year-old prime movers and converting them from uh, diesel to electric. Um, so we're taking um, Kenworths, Max, Peter, uh, Western Stars, Freightliners, 
uh, Volvos and, and converting them from a diesel prime mover to uh, electric and then putting on our exchangeable battery technology. So that's starting to heat up a bit, yeah? Yeah, look, we've got a lot of interest. Um, I think a lot of fleet operators are wanting to embrace the technology and move forward because there's big operational savings in, in going to electric and, and get away getting away from high volatile diesel prices. We have got a couple of regional carriers around um, Mount Gambier and Port Augusta that are looking at it um, and some agricultural carriers that are starting to look at it from um, fixed um, operations, so typically running to feedlots or running uh, from grain board to, to port, depending on the distance that they're, they're looking at covering. Um, we've converted seven trucks so far. We've got orders there for about another 130. Uh, one will be carting milk, the other is carting sand and gravel, and the other one is doing cement. And then we've got one going into a logging application and then one going into a mining application uh, hauling copper concentrate uh, for a project that we're doing with Oz Minerals and Cube called Vision Electric. Um, and then we've got some uh, some going to Melbourne, uh, going into fridge vans for one of our partners down there, Newcold, that will be um, uh, carrying uh, different frozen goods um, from de uh, delivery um, from producers to uh, DC and then DC into a um, into uh, the supermarket DCs. That's uh, where we've 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 seen some of that, and also in the mining space in some of their long haul routes where they're not running a um, a dump truck, but they might be running a quad road train or a or a power, a power trailer combination. I mean, one of the constraints that farmers often talk about is, um, you know, the lack of charging points around the countryside. Is that something that can be solved? Yeah, look, we, we build our own charge stations as well. Um, we, we understand the, the pressures of charging points. And, you know, this, this application for electric vehicles, I, I don't believe electric vehicles are going to suit a, a livestock carrier or a... Um, a carrier in, in in far western Queensland or in in outback Australia, because the reality of it is, is there's a tyranny of distance. And when you when you look at the duty cycles of some of those vehicles, they're not utilised completely the way that um, vehicles in the capital cities are and in line hall, prominent line haul routes. Uh, I do think that you know th there is going to be a need uh, for some diesel prime movers in these rural applications because it it doesn't make sense to go and put a heap of charging infrastructure in the middle of Australia or, you know, you're not going to get uh, pastoralist companies putting charging stations in there to recharge livestock trucks. That That's just not going to be practical. Uh, but in applications where you're, you know, for a farmer who has trucks operating on their farm, there's no reason why you couldn't put a solar system in one of our charge stations there on their farm and have any of the trucks that are working within the property running on electric. It would reduce maintenance costs and running costs significantly. Um, and they've got the beauty of being able to have a, a backup power system uh, for their for their properties as well at the same time. Yeah, the battery can can be a multi-purpose type thing. What about range? Yeah. What are you seeing in terms of range for these vehicles? Look, we're, we're seeing between four to 600 kilometres, depending on what the vehicle's towing. Um, obviously, single trailer applications are a little bit higher, but anywhere between that four to 600 kilometres and the regenerative braking, that's a standard feature. Depending on the topography, you're harvesting that energy back into the battery. So that's that's what we're seeing as a as a as range indications at the moment. And the cost of filling up your tank with diesel that's got prohibitively expensive, as you mentioned earlier. What would it cost to recharge electrically? Oh, I think if you look at if you look at it as a cents per kilometre basis, uh, typically you, you're seeing around uh, diesel's costing most operators. Um, typically, in most applications around that a dollar to a dollar fifteen a kilometre to operate. Going to electric, you're looking at around that uh, forty to forty to sixty cents, depending on where you where you're buying your power. So, a farmer's right then that this is going to be, as you were saying, limited application in the bush, or do you think long term, 
it, it could could eventually be the way of the future, electric vehicles on farms? I, th I definitely think electric vehicles are the way of the future. What, what we need is advancements in the battery cell chemistry. We're, we're working with one of our, our cell providers who's a partner in, uh, of our business, and we've got a new chemistry coming that we should see middle of next year, which is a, a lithium sulfur chemistry. That will double our double our range. So all of a sudden, our batteries will go from doing four to six hundred, going to eight to twelve hundred kilometres out of a battery charge. That's the game changer. Um, the the big thing that we see is that you know as battery cell technology develops and we get better better um, energy density out of solid state and these other chemistries that are being developed at the moment. It, it, the reason why we've gone with an exchangeable battery solution is so that the, the, the operator can get that technology as soon as it becomes economically viable and in manufacture, rather than buying a fixed battery asset um, that's fixed to the vehicle, we, we're looking at it and going, well, we've got to be able to move with the technology. And that's where the technology developments are coming is in battery cell technology. Just one last question, going back on the performance stuff. If I put a, an electric motor in one of my machines what, how would it perform? Is it is it better or, or worse when it comes to you know heavy heavy moving? Oh look, I, I think it, we're, we're, the feedback that we get is the drivers find it unbelievable to drive because they are the, the torque and the availability of immediate torque is there. Like we're we're going to have some of the highest powered electric trucks in the world at seven hundred and twenty horsepower. Um, we're about to about to deliver uh, two. One's going under a triple road train operating at 150 tonne and one's going under a, a B-double operating at about 68 and a half tonne. Um, so, you know, this this fallacy of electric vehicles not being able to shift and tow the loads comfortably, it, it's not it's not accurate. The the performance of electric motors is is far superior to that of a diesel, just through the through the um, flat torque curve that is in an electric motor. Lex Forsyth from Janus Electric speaking to David Clawton about converting prime movers from diesel to electric power. Well, for a lot of people, the festive season means taking it easy under the aircon or out on the back deck or perhaps sitting on the header if you're still harvesting or going for a swim. But for camp draft enthusiasts from all around the country, it means loading up their horses and travelling to South Gippsland to compete at the New Year's Eve Dumbork Camp Draft. One of those who's made the longest trip of all is Rick Ford, who's travelled with his family more than 4,500 kilometres from Fitzroy Crossing in WA's Kimberley. The ABC's Peter Somerville headed along and caught up with Rick. I love the sport of camp draft and uh, heavily involved in the Kimberley circuit over there. We go to five or six camp drafts over in the Kimberleys and um, the girls competed down in Dumbolk last year. COVID restrictions couldn't let them get back into WA. So they came down with good friends of ours, Bruce and Jane Odell from Odell, Odell Aquan and um, Craig and Caroline McNabb. And um, they competed here last year and they said it was a great event and wanted to come down to get away from the wet season rains up there in the Kimberley at the moment. So we're down here competing. You came back even despite getting cut off with the border restrictions. It must be a good event. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, my wife and I, Stacey's first time, but the kids have been here before, so I've got four daughters and uh, two of them have competed and they're all, all four competing this weekend and they really love the cattle and the, the complex and the people. So, yeah, we've come a long way to... We dragged three horses all the way down and well, here we are. That's a huge effort. How do you uh, how do you do that? How do you bring horses all the way across the country? Um, we brought them down the horse float behind a car and uh, three horses, and I took seven days. We we had to rest them up. It's a long journey over that distance, particularly coming from the heat up there and the build up the wet season in the Kimberley at the moment, and um, coming down to this cooler climate. So we give them a slow, steady trip down, but they all travelled well, and yeah, they've they've had a couple of good runs so far on the weekend. 
and uh, how do you think the kids uh, will, will go here or have they competed already? Uh, had a couple of runs, a um, couple of outside scores, um, still a few runs to go, um, so pretty excited that they might get a few more around, yeah. Is it in uh, your blood too? It seems to be a, a bit of a um, family tradition sort of thing. Is it, have you competed before too? Yeah, family sport, um, completed pretty heavily as a young person and then into my early managing career um, and then got a bit busy, managed cattle stations and couldn't get enough time to ride my horse so the kids took over them and they've enjoyed riding those horses and we've got them a few more so yeah, love the sport and it's definitely family orientated. What is it about camp drafting? Why do, why do people love it so much? Why do you do it? Oh, just the atmosphere, being able to sit on your horse and talk to people and judge cattle, good quality cattle, easy to draft, get around, have a good time, pick up a paycheck if you can and, and um, just the camaraderie. Um, it's a, you know, it's an ideal sport for show, showcasing what we do, living and working on the land and, you know, the foundation of, of what we do is, is mustering cattle and putting them around and putting them in the yard and letting them go again. So I just think it's a really good uh, sport for that. You know, you can sit there on your horse and have a beer in the afternoon and just makes it really pleasurable and a pretty good way to travel and see the country too i imagine where has it taken you uh, so i'm originally from central queensland um it's taken me through to the territory over to the kimberleys um like i said we do have five or six drafts in the kimberleys so some of those are sort of 1400 kilometer one-way journeys to get from from fitzroy crossing all the way over to catherine in the northern territory to compete so um yeah so it's taken me all around australia but this is our most southern one um, we've obviously competed down at the Landmark Classic and Nutrient Classic these days. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a big sport and widely followed all throughout Australia. And is it all much the same or is there a different sort of um, feel or different elements to each event? Uh, there is a few different elements. Um, I guess the cattle that you're working, these, these cattle here are a little softer than what we're normally used to in the north. Um, obviously chasing the Brahmins or the drought masters up in the north, uh, a little bit different to the Angus down here in the south. They travel a bit different. So you're looking for different things to judge them in the, in the camp in, um, to get them outside. So, yeah, I think there's, yeah, you can never stop learning and there, uh, yeah, there is a lot of different aspects in the sport that takes us uh, a lot of good people a long time to master. That was Rick Ford from Fitzroy Crossing in the Kimberley speaking with Peter Somerville at the New Year's Eve Dumbok Camp Draft in Gippsland travelled four and a half thousand kilometres to get to the Camp Draft that's keenness for you Still to come, the long lunch for farmers to gather together for a chat, collecting crocodile eggs and we'll have a check on the weather First up the news headlines with Ellie Ward Former Federal Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken Wyatt says detail on the voice to Parliament is already available to both politicians and the public. Mr Wyatt is urging Liberal leader Peter Dutton to allow a conscience vote within the party on the voice after Nationals MP Andrew G quit the party over its stance. Brazil's government's declared three days of mourning as tributes pour in for the Brazilian soccer player Pele, who has died at the age of 82. Fiji's new Prime Minister says he has no plans to strengthen military and police ties with China. Sidoveni Rambuka was sworn in last week, ending the 16-year reign of former PM Frank Bainimarama. Ten out of the remaining 11 yachts in the Sydney to Hobart race are expected to finish today, with the last coming in just before 10 o'clock tonight. Bringing up the tail of the fleet is Karawong. The nine-metre yacht will likely be the only one sailing tomorrow and is expected to sea in 2023 at sea. And in the Melbourne to Hobart, just over half the fleet's finished with the overall handicap winner expected to be known this afternoon. 
More news at one. Time now to check the weather. Matthew Thomas joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Matthew. Hi, Tony. How are you? Yeah, good. All the best for the new year. And to you too. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Rainfall figures, have we got much about? Look, there hasn't been um, terribly much. Um, So, look, there were a few light falls about the... um, the, about King Island really to 9am um, and since 9am about King Island and Flinders Island but we're only talking a millimetre or, or so on um, on each of the islands um, and um, we're going to see some we've got cloudy conditions about the, the northern half of the state and, um, and cloud building about the east and that's um, we've got a ridge of high pressure just over um, southern Tasmania at the moment and um, a, a trough just building to the the north of um, of Tasmania, and we'll see some um, some showers um, develop about the the north and the upper east, and we will see um, about the um, the the north. It's probably going to be less than three millimetres, but the upper east um, we could see um, five to ten millimetres um, during the um, this afternoon and evening um, as the the flow. Um, Tends more east to, to northeasterly, um, and we might just see an odd the odd light shower about the, the lower east coast. Um, into Saturday, the ridge will move to the, the south of Tasmania, and and that trough that's over the mainland will um, extend over um, the state um, and extend a warm to hot, humid, and unstable air mass over the state. And we'll see some showers um, develop mainly about the, the north and the east in the morning, and then um, developing about the west in the afternoon and we'll see some thunderstorms pop up um, about the west of Tasmania um, during um, during the afternoon. Um, into um, Sunday that ridge will weaken, um, still maintain the east to northeasterly airstream over Tasmania. Um, we'll see showers mainly about the, the north and the upper east once again but we're looking at, um, you know, around up to two millimetres mainly, but up against the western tiers and about the northeast highlands, we might see totals um, pushing up towards um, five millimetres. And then on Monday, that's probably the, the most significant day. We've got a cold front that will cross um, the state and it'll be hot ahead of that, um, quite unstable. We'll still have that humid air mass. We'll see um, some showers um, develop, um, particularly as the um, the... Um, the front does cross um, and the showers will mainly be about the, the west and the south. There's a chance they could push on to the, the north of um, the, the state as well um, through um, through Monday. But um, m- the higher falls will be um, about the west and the south. And we could see some thunderstorms with that um, front as it does cross um, and totals of, um, of around um, of around two to five millimetres about the west and the south as the um, and um, falls of around 10 to 20 millimetres if there are thunderstorms. Um, and then into um, to Tuesday, we've got a, a ridge to um, to build to our um, our west, and a um, a trough will just run up the east coast and um, through the north. So while the showers will start around the west and the south, they'll um, they'll shift more to being about the east and the north into the afternoon and evening. And in terms of um, of rainfall through. Um, through Tuesday, we're looking at the, the heavier falls really being about the, the northeast and the um, and through the north, and we could see um, totals of um, of two to five millimetres about those locations. Okay, any warnings? 
Um, so we do have some warnings. So with the um, the warm air mass that we're going to see push over the state, we do have a, um, a heat wave warning from Saturday to Monday. Um, we'll see um, a low intensity heat wave over most areas, but we will see some pockets of severe heat wave um, over parts of Tasmania, but not over Hobart or um, Launceston. Um, so we are going to see the air mass warm up quite significantly on Friday. We've got a strong wind warning that's current for the, the far northwest coast and um, and um, no warnings for um, Saturday at the moment. Okay, and the coastal waters and swell. Okay, so we're currently looking at east to northeasterly winds, 15 to, to 20 knots, reaching up to 30 knots um, in Bass Strait. Um, um, in the early afternoon, and the winds um, about the west coast shifting south to southeastly at 15 to 20 knots um, during the, the day. Um, into tomorrow, we'll have northeasterly winds of 10 to 20 knots, reaching 25 knots um, about the, the southeast, um, and the winds tending southeasterly um, 5 to 15 knots um, about the um, the west coast. In terms of the swells around the west and the south, a west to southwesterly of two to two and a half metres, decaying down to near two metres um, tomorrow. Um, about the north, a westerly around one metre and an easterly below one metre, um, with the um, the easterly picking up to one to one and a half metres through um, Saturday. About the um, east, we've got both a southerly um, to one metre. But, um, but also an east to northeasterly around one metre, building to one to one and a half metres tomorrow. The wave rider buoy at um, Cape Sorrel currently shows a significant wave of 2.2 metres, a maximum wave of 3.5 metres and a 13 second period. Um, and the wave rider buoy at um, Mariah Island um, currently shows a significant wave of 1.1 metres, a maximum wave of two metres and a 10 second period. Good on you, Matthew. Thank you for that. Have a great new year. You too. Matthew Thomas from the Bureau with all the information for you. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And John from Ferntree. G'day, John, says Tony. The room elephant about tractors and trucks is what happens when a crop is being harvested ahead of a huge damaging storm. Would the farmer prefer 10 minutes fuel up? or two to four hours to recharge. I have commented on problems with lithium batteries previously, but want to mention the great news of sodium batteries, which are in advanced research. Salt is everywhere and safe in a battery. Thank you for that, uh, John. OK, let's have some lunch now. As sale yards across the country close, so do some of the last real community meeting places for the farming community. But at North Down near Devonport, one man has managed to convince some local hard-working farmers to occasionally take a couple of hours out of their day to enjoy a lengthy meal together in the name of fellowship. Our reporter Meg Powell managed to snag an invitation and a bit of food and sat down to chew the fat with some local agricultural legends. <laughs> Reuben Radford, you grew up in La Trobe and you've got a picture, a book of pictures here. Can you explain some of these photos to me? Oh yeah, some of the pictures of the uh, railway station at La Trobe and when the steam train, the steam engines used to cross the road at La Trobe and they used to stand out in the middle of the road with a red flag and a green flag to hold the traffic up while the steam engine crossed the road. Mike Blythe we're at Northdown today at a, a beautiful shed on a rural property having a very long lunch. Could you tell me what a long lunch is? Well, a long lunch uh, in the Mediterranean uh, style is around sitting around, uh, eating 
small amounts of food over a long period of time, enjoying some drinks and conversation with your colleagues. That's the idea. And how did uh, this Mediterranean tradition end up all the way over here in Northdown? Oh, I guess with the travel I've done uh, through through Spain mostly, um, was seeing, and also some of the cooking shows, was uh, seeing how retired men spend their time. And it's very much around camaraderie, meeting up with colleagues, taking time to enjoy life and sit back and relax. So. So was that something you were hoping to reproduce here? Is that where the idea came from? Correct, it is. Yep, yep. So the first one we held in uh, July this year and the idea was to do exactly that, expose uh, local farmers and uh, ag people to that lifestyle. We failed a little bit in that everyone wanted to eat and run and get back to work, <laughs> but uh, we've worked on it this time and we've dragged them out a bit longer this time. So Had it's to train them to slow down a little bit. Correct, correct. <laughs> What I've observed over the, a number of years of living in the district is uh, we've had re- farmers, they're actually not retired, there's a lot of guys working in their 80s uh, that are still working full-time on the farm, uh, but they've tended to lose a lot of their social uh, opportunities. Uh, the the Coiba sale yards closed a few years back, uh, number, and that was a, a standard way for people to uh, meet, meet colleagues, have a chat, catch up with the goss. And that's now gone. Um, I think also a lot of the uh, older guys don't are, aren't interested in field days of new innovations, so they don't go to those. So a lot of their social interaction is actually curtailed. So this is an opportunity to meet up with people they haven't seen for ages, some of the, the uh, ag representatives from companies, uh, and just catch up again and just relive some old days. Across the road. How old are you, Ruben, if it's not too rude to ask? How old? 88, going on 89. You've brought some photos along here today as well. Yeah. What are these ones? Well, that's my old father's truck. They're loading hay there, sheaves of hay. And all those people there, there are all passed away. And a photo there of a 1934, I think it is, Ford Ute there. And that's my brother there and that's myself there. Looked like about four, four years old. Oh, very cute. Yeah. Uh, my name's Rob Beveridge. Uh, been retired for about, uh, I don't know, 12, 13 years. We're out uh, in a shed that is extremely well set up for an occasion like this. And I'd basically say we're chewing the fat, I suppose, about old experiences that have gone back over the last 40, 50, 60 years. Farmers are pretty good at chewing the fat when they they're, get together. Yeah, they're very good at chewing the fat. This is the second long lunch that's been held. Why do you keep coming? Well, I was a bit, ap- uh, I was a bit apprehensive about the first run, probably. I thought, oh, what are we going to do? And I met a lot of guys I hadn't seen for years. So when the opportunity to come to this one, I decided, yeah, I'll go along and, and just have a nice, social, good time. Now, you, you were a stock agent at Koiba for a number of years. That closed down. Did that leave a bit of a gap, would you say, in the community? I would say it left a huge gap. Uh, I was very disappointed when Koiba actually closed completely. People used to go to those things, though, not to buy or sell, but just to chat. Yeah, a lot of guys would come to Koiba and just for a chat and talk to one another. You'd be busy working, but you always knew who they were and what their backgrounds were. And I remember I went back about five or six years after retired and here's four guys sitting on a stool near the kiosk in exactly the same position they were when I left. (laughs) So I knew them all and they were sitting in the same position. 
probably solving all the world's problems oh, while no, they're at it. That, Meg, yes. <laughs> Does this kind of thing serve as something as a replacement for that? Well, I think it does to a certain extent, and and I think men's sheds are probably good as well for for people who haven't got any other interest, because a lot of those people that go there, that was their two days a week they had contact with other men. Will you come to another one of these long lunches, do you reckon? Oh, bound to. <laughs> Couldn't miss it. I mean, not to mention it's a great deal, 15 bucks for a lot of food. <laughs> yeah. No, very good. It's excellent, actually. Hmm. This is our place in Baker's Lane when we bought it back in 1954, I think it was. And I think we bought it for £11,000. A lot of money back then. It was a lot of money back then. Very bad repair, but we had to take the roof completely off, re-pitch a new roof on it, upend some trees, and then we finally, solid house, finally put bricks around it, bricked that main building, and it's still there today. So your family's been farming in this district since the 1950s or earlier? Since I was two years old. Yeah, they come to Moriarty when I was two years old, so I'm 88. Have there been people reunited at these things so far that might not have seen each other for a while? Yes, they have, yeah. It's actually, they don't realise how many years have disappeared during that time. So a number of them have said, oh, I actually haven't seen Joe Bloggs for eight years because they've retired, they've gone into their own lifestyle and all their old connections have disappeared and they just don't interact anymore. So this is a good opportunity to get them back together. Now you, um, you seem to be in your element today, running around with your apron and serving people food. What's your favourite part of this long lunch? Oh, I think seeing them actually enjoy the time. And when they, as you saw, they lifted the roof off the shed with the amount of talking going on. So the, the gossiping was happening and the catching up. And I think it's just sitting back and seeing them interact and, and catch up is great. Um, and the other guys that have helped out, they're, they're good foodies. They, they understand about catering. So we just want to get together some good food, give them some time to uh, chat and relax. Whoever said men don't talk was absolutely wrong. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great story. Mike Blythe there, the man who decided to bring Spanish-style meals to his tiny rural community in the name of Social Connection at Northdown near Devonport. He was speaking to our reporter, Meg Powell. And you also heard from farmer Reuben Radford. What a beauty Reuben is, eh? And retired stock agent Ron Beveridge as well, formerly worked at Coiba Sale Yards. Well, the 40th Aerial Survey of Water Birds across Eastern Australia, one of the largest and longest-running wildlife surveys in the world, has just completed its annual track across one-third of the continent. The results are positive, with the total number of water birds estimated across the survey area in 2022 at nearly 190,000, an increase from the previous year. Lead researcher Professor Richard Kingsford says although the bump in numbers is a good sign for native bird populations, it's still well below the long-term average and the 11th lowest in the 40 years of the survey. I think, as everybody knows, it's been an amazing year in terms of flooding and rivers and and as expected, we saw that in the sort of response of waterbirds. You know, they take advantage of all of that extra habitat that's created on those floodplains, many of which haven't been flooded for some time. And so we identified some really quite big breeding concentrations, plus lots of pairs of waterbirds. And really, I guess the other standout was because there was so much water around, the the waterbirds are really thinly spread across that landscape. 
So you haven't sort of got those big, dense populations surrounding one river or creek? No, that's right. Although, surprisingly, you know, there were some standout wetlands, particularly those that we know about that are important in the Murray-Darling Basin, including the Macquarie Marshes and the lower Murrumbidgee wetlands. You know, these are really productive systems recognised by governments and communities as being important for the health of the river systems in the Murray-Darling and high concentrations there and also on the Lachlan system. Yeah, there are some standout areas, but again, because there's so much water, the the birds are basically flat out breeding everywhere because there's so much food around. Are there any particular breeds that you think will explode in population over the next 12 or so months as a result? Look, I think we're probably going to see a response right across the, the group. Um, there are, of course, some migratory wading birds that don't breed in Australia. They, they, they're here during our summer months having bred in the Northern Hemisphere. So they obviously wouldn't uh, um, get that sort of kick, but they will get lots of feeding areas. But I, th- I think some of the colonially breeding water birds, you know, things like straw-necked ibis that are really good at sort of feeding on things like locusts, um, some of the egrets and herons are breeding up in, in big numbers, but right across the board, we'd expect that in coming years, a, a flood of this size will have ongoing positive impacts for you know at least three or four maybe even up to a decade from now you know that there, there can be future op- issues around the rice growing areas perhaps but apart from that um you know the, the numbers of water birds have been over the that 40 years been declining um significantly so you know the more we can sort of build up their numbers it's a good reflection i guess of the health of the the rivers and their wetlands. On that point, so how does the 2022 survey compare to the 40-year history? About like whereabouts is it sitting in the rankings? Look, it's it's around about 11th in the rankings. So we've been sort of getting this long-term decline since the early 1980s when we started the survey, and every time we have a, a reasonable flood, we get a kick up in this in the subsequent year to two years and we'd expect that next year in particular but it is higher than last year which is um and we obviously knew last year was a la nina year so the birds were spread out there so i'd expect in the next couple of years that we'll we'll get a lift it probably won't go back to the same sort of levels because since people will know since the early 1980s we've had quite a lot of development of river systems, particularly in the northern part of the Murray-Darling in the Darling River catchments, which mean that those floodplain wetlands don't get flooded as frequently and as extensively as they did in the past. So those are some of the sort of long-term changes that you only really get an understanding with these long-term data sets that are able to sort of cover those dry periods and also the wet periods because you know, it is this long-term data that's very important in terms of understanding what's going on in these systems. That's Director of the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales, Professor Richard Kingsford, speaking there with Jane McNaughton about the 40th Aerial Survey of Waterbirds across Eastern Australia. Well, finally today, a story about one of the most dangerous forms of farming. As the wet season rains in the Northern Territory start to pour down, saltwater crocodiles begin to lay their eggs. At Crocodilus Park outside Darwin, workers take on the dangerous task of collecting those eggs from the farm's crocs. Would you like to do that job? 
Michelle Stanley went along to Crocodilus with Emily Moyes to see how it's all done. You probably see that's Mama just there. She's just popped up in front of the sawgrass there. Um, she knows that we're coming around and she wants to protect her nest. So we're just cruising around our river at the moment. Every year we collect nests from here. Depends on the rain, how many nests we have for the year. You might have maybe 12 to 16 nests. Um, so what we're doing is kind of trying to look for signs um, where a female may be nesting. So it might be that mum is out on the bank or she's on the river and she's usually quite fixated um, on staring where her nest is because she's being a great mum and being quite protective. Or it might be other signs where we can see grass is being pushed over, um, vegetation has been clumped together. You can always tell where a female is generally getting ready or whether it does actually usually have eggs in the nest because when they have made the nest and they have laid the eggs, they put a lot of work into it. So they use their tail, they use their claws, they mix up all the grass or the dirt or the vegetation, the mud, um, and it's, it's really intricate. They make you know, a fantastic nest. Um, it, can, it can range in size, it can be up to two metres wide, but sometimes you might only have a tiny nest that is, you know, might be only 30 centimetres wide. And that also depends on the female's experience as well. She could be a new mum, she's learning how to make a nest, she's learning her territory and trying to find an area for herself and her hatchlings, um, or it could be a really experienced female. So with the wet season um, comes nests, it's our favourite time of year. Depending on the rain really depends on when our nests start and how many. So because we have had um, a good block of rain in the last two weeks, we have had a very strong start to the season. We've collected about six nests so far in the park, um, whereas generally you might find with the first few big rains we'll have one or two nests and then we'll have a bit of a break um, but because we have had that consistent rain um, the females they just they know their biological clock goes okay it's time to lay your eggs um, they know that the weather's cooling down it's not going to be hot so we have had yeah, a really good start to the season oh there you go there's a nest just there that we've just spotted the nest that we've just spotted, that's the sort of mound of dirt. It just looks a bit scrappy. It doesn't really look like it. I mean, it's certainly not a bird's nest or anything that's really obvious. You've got to have a good eye. Don't say that too loud. They might get a bit upset you said that about their little hatchling home. Um, but yes, look, it's, it's you know, whatever is kind of around. Um, it's not like a, a bird that, you know, you bow birds that decorate their nests and make it all pretty. Um, you know, they are apex predators that have been around a long time and they, they know what they need to do to survive and, and that's make a, a decent nest. And, yeah, it, it can look a bit scrappy sometimes. Have we found another one off to the left oh, of us here? Just looking at this female, is it? it looks like there's another mound up there as well. So you can see here this female here. See how she's looking up at the bank? Yeah. And she's just turning her head as we come along and I can see her nest just under that tree. See a mound oh, there? Yeah. So that's a good indicator. She's sitting at that bank looking after her nest, making sure there's no predators. So what do you do now that you've seen that? Well, we get to do the fun part. We get to get out and, and check the nest um, and have a look if there's any eggs. And if there is, then um, we'll dig up the nest and, and grab them out. What's it like? What's going through your head when you're trying to get in to get those <laughs> eggs? <laughs> look, safety, safety is my number one concern. Um, you know, it, it is a dangerous job. Um, so we need to make sure that we're equipped and that everyone feels comfortable. So we'll always do a bit of a team brief before we leave the boat, make sure everyone understands their roles, make sure everyone's comfortable and confident. 
and just checking throughout the nest collection everyone all good yep sweet everyone's comfortable after you know you've you've done it for a while you it's just kind of like driving to the shops and and getting groceries you know it just becomes second nature really do you still get that adrenaline coursing through your system absolutely when you're down on the ground covered in mud trying to get eggs and there's crocs coming out at you it's always a fun way to start your day and we don't drink much coffee around here (laughs) (laughs) on the country hour you're hearing from emily Moyes, the general manager at crocodilus park and she's about to brief her staff ahead of checking their first crocodile nest for the day so what we'll do is we'll nose in just at the bank here Danny, if you can just stay in the boat and if you can just keep an eye on mum down here and let us know what she's doing. I think she probably will come out. So just focus on her. But we'll just, we'll slowly go out together and see what she does, see how she responds, if she's going to come up straight away or or not. This is a beautiful nest. She's done a great job. Nice size. You can see she's mixed everything together really well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start digging around here um, and hopefully we should be able to find some eggs. They shouldn't be too deep down. Um, It is a decent nest. So as you can see, see how she's mixed everything so well together. You've got grass, you've got straw, you've got mud, some rocks. It's nice and damp, which is exactly what we want. It's nice and cool. What I'll do is just start from one side and work my way through the nest. And what I'm looking for is a pocket. Um, So we'll come across a little pocket of eggs. There we go, look at that. Oh wow. Beautiful eggs. They're not that much bigger than like chicken eggs. Uh, Not too too big. It does depend on the female as well. The size of the female depending on um, what capacity she can carry and what size they are. Some beautiful eggs. Of the 40, 50 eggs you're collecting here, how many do you expect to hatch successfully? Um, Because We are collecting them so fresh and straight away. Um, These should have a pretty high um, hatch rate because they are being removed and putting in a controlled environment. So, you know, you should see a a 98% hatch rate from these guys. In the wild, it would be a lot less than that. So how many did you get in total just now? Um, I'm not sure. (laughs) I would probably say, um, I mean, that was a decent-sized clutch, so probably around 60 And that's it, that one's done. So why do you do it? So here in Crocodilus Park, we collect the eggs, um, we incubate them, and then they are sold onto crocodile farms um, for raising, and they will be made into skin products and for meat products as well. So in the wild um, and in captivity as well, crocodile nests are really vulnerable predation, flooding, heat. Um, So a very small percentage actually make it to adulthood. So, you know, we, yeah, we collect them and we sell them onto the farms and and they get produced as any other normal farming animal. That's Emily Moyes, General Manager of Crocodilus Park near Darwin, speaking with Michelle Stanley, collecting the crocodile eggs. Ending the country hour for today and indeed for 2022. Have a happy and safe uh, New Year weekend and we will catch you next year on uh, Monday after midday for a new edition of the Country Hour.